on ABC New South Wales. This is the Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. Good afternoon. Thanks for your company today. Lovely to be with you across regional New South Wales. Coming up today, you'll hear from the cane industry. They've hit back at research into the Richmond River that found a banned pesticide in oysters and water there. We could have launched an investigation at the time had we have been informed that there was a spike, a one-off spike out of all of these sites. We could have had spray diary could have been called for. We could have analysed those data and uh, determined some of the causes if, in fact, it was believed to come from sugar cane. You'll hear more from... Uh Ross Farlow soon. You'll also hear this afternoon from the New South Wales Planning Department. They've backed a wind farm proposal on the border of the New England and Upper Hunter regions, but at a reduced scale. We'll get into that and plenty more right here on the New South Wales Country Hour this afternoon. If you'd like to join us in any conversations there this afternoon, you can text 0467922684. We are also hoping to hear from the New South Wales DPI very soon. There has been another fire ant detection. We'll take you to the coast shortly. But uh, first today, you were hearing there in the news at midday that we're being asked to conserve our power wherever we can today, with many parts of the state soaring to 40 degrees or more. The Energy Minister says it will put a strain on the grid this afternoon. Now, the state government and an Australian energy market operator have enacted the hot weather protocols ahead of a predicted spike in electricity demand from 5 till 9 today. But in Power Generation Heartland, the former federal member for Hunter, former Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, Joel Fitzgibbon, says it's time to fire up a biomass project in the Hunter. He's now the chair of the Australian Forest Products Association and is backing Verdant Earth Technologies' proposal to restart the mothballed Red Bank power station. But the proposal this time is to fuel it with wood biomass. I've just come back from COP28, where, of course, uh, you with lots of Europeans where woody biomass is very regularly used in the electricity generation sector. We are behind the times here in Australia. It's an alternative renewable fuel for us. Now, this summer we're facing the very real prospect of uh, blackouts in our homes and in our businesses. And yet, uh, in our own backyard in the Hunter Valley is a 150-megawatt baseload power generator sitting idle awaiting approval for the use of biomass as its fuel. It was built to take coal tailings right back in, I think, in about 2001. I remember speaking about it in the Parliament there in its infancy. It's been sitting there idle for years. It would solve all of our problems. We just need the approval for the use of biomass as the, as the fuel. Do we have enough biomass? I mean, we've heard from the Greens in the past that, um, you know, they've, they've pledged to, uh, I think, the relentless campaign against it was the word. Do we have enough biomass? Is it environmentally sustainable to reboot reboot this station? Well, the environmental activists are against everything, aren't they? They, they say that nuclear is no good because it can't compete. Well, this is a matter for the market. Uh, lift the prohibition and let the market decide. If it's not supported in the community, if, you, if, it's, if it can't compete economically, well, let the market determine that. And it's the same with biomass. You know, imagine applying to, to open a fish and chip shop at the council. And having the council say, no, we're not going to approve it because we don't think you're going to be able to get the potatoes you need. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I think there is sufficient supply uh, of biomass. But, of course, the supply will grow greater when they know when the, those who produce it know there's a market for it. 
I guess it sounds like a bit of a risky business. We've been speaking a lot about, um, you know, forestry in the wake of um, the summer bushfires so many years ago now. But uh, I guess, yeah, we've had the potato shortages as well, haven't we? Well, you know, in, in Europe in particular, and it's emerging here in Australia too, you, you get woody biomass from two sources. Uh, one, the residues, that is the part of the tree. I mean, it, it makes no sense for people to grow trees or harvest trees and not put them to their most valuable use. So our foresters try to get maximum value out of the tree, but there will always be residues. Now, those residues are now burnt, and that's not good for the environment. They could be uh, more environmentally used in a power station and there are also plantations now that are being done just for um, the extraction of residues or wood chips for wood chip markets. So there is there is no argument that this thing should not be approved because it might not be able to get the fuel. I believe the fuel is there and people wouldn't be putting their substantial amount of money uh, into the project if they didn't think they could get the fuel. Why, I mean, why would you do that? Is there the argument, though, that if it's still being burnt um, through the power station, that that can still put out you know, nasty things into the air for people? No, because when it, get, when it goes through a power station process, like any uh, scale manufacturing process, um, it's done in an environmentally uh, sustainable way. You know, the, 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 any emissions are captured, if you like. They're scrubbed, to use the old terminology, uh, whereas you're burning, the, you know, burning it on the ground and you're just releasing all the about things into the atmosphere. So it's more environmentally friendly and sustainable to do it within a power station. And as I understand it, the, the, the developers there um, have um, other plans in, uh, in trial in terms of hydrogen, uh, which would be integrated into the process. So uh, this is a great opportunity, 150 megawatts of baseload power. This is, this is the solution, if you like, short-term solution for New South Wales and, and, and indeed the whole the whole national electricity market grid. Um, we just need to get on with it. The Hunter has always sort of been looked to to generate a lot of the state's energy. Of course, this year we saw Liddell power down after more than half a century in use. I suppose it's just changing of the guard, is it, to keep the Hunter as a powerhouse? Oh, I said a million times in the Federal Parliament when I was there that New, uh, the Hunter Valley is the powerhouse of New South Wales. Uh, that remains true, but as those coal-fired generators exit the market. They need to be replaced by something. Uh, we know we can't get there uh, using wind, solar and battery technology alone, particularly given the, the delays in the approval processes there, you know, people protesting against wind farms, people protesting against transmission lines. We need a more immediate solution and solutions which are very reliable. And, and that is, of course, a synchronous baseload solution and you know, Red Bank sitting there ready to go. I say let's do it. Joel Fitzgibbon is the chair of the Australian Forest Products Association, the former member for Hunter, federal member for Hunter, and also the former Minister for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry and Defence back in the day. And he was speaking there about the Red Bank power station in the Hunter Valley and plans to restart it, this time fuelled with wood biomass. And those plans are currently before the state government. The company is preparing its environmental impact statement at the moment. And that'll, of course, then go on public exhibition and move through the phases. But his thoughts there, Joel Fitzgibbon, on the Country Hour at 12 past 12. You might have some thoughts too. You can always reach us at uh, 0467 922 684.
Or well, to other news of the day now, and the sugarcane industry says it never used Benamil, the banned fungicide that's been detected in oysters and water in the Richmond River in the state's north. The industry also says it was blindsided by Southern Cross University research findings on high levels of herbicides atrazine and diuron at a site at Empire Vale, which is adjacent to Caneland, and it was one of six sites tested for pesticides in the lower estuary in 2020. New South Wales Cane Growers Association Chairman Ross Farlow says if industry had been alerted to a one-off spike at the time, an investigation could have determined whether cane farms were in fact the source for the pesticide runoff, as he explains to our reporter Kim Honan. Well, it's one thing to point the finger, Kim, but it's another thing to prove it. And um, although we are users of those chemicals, not the one that you mentioned first, the Benamil, that's... uh, to my knowledge, never been used. It's not registered for sugar cane and it's never been used as a fungicide in the sugar industry in the past. Um, we have had no use for that fungicide. We had another fungicide that was was doing our job. So I don't know where that Benamil would have come from. Um, they'll have to investigate that further, but it's not a sugar industry issue, that one. One of the main concerns we've got is that um, why now? Why release the report now some almost four years down the track after a one-off spike in one drain at Empire Vale in 2020. Why now, when uh, the sister outlet, some 500 metres away, under the same trials uh, data collecting process, found that those paddocks and that drain outlet was well within the guidelines? All of our farmers use spray diaries. It's against the law not to. All of our farmers have critical accreditation using APVMA-approved chemicals. We could have launched an investigation at the time had we have been informed that there was a spike, a one-off spike out of all of these sites. We could have had spray diary could have been called for. We could have analysed those data and uh, determined some of the causes if, in fact, it was believed to come from sugarcane. We have no way now of investigating this some four years down the track. It's very, very disturbing and I think very uh, very poor form from the researchers. So why is it too late to investigate that spike in 2020 when you say that uh, cane growers do keep diaries? Those diaries fill up. They may have been destroyed. Farms may have been sold. Alternate uses may have changed. Um, the use of that land, you know... Society and farming is a fluid, uh, is, is always in flux, a state of flux. So I'm going back the other way. If there was a concern, we can fix these issues. It was a one-off spike. It wasn't there in 2021. You know, we've had three major flood events since that incident occurred. Absolute devastation on the, uh, on the Richmond River in those flood events. So, you know, the landscape has changed. The data could be lost and the opportunity has been lost. And to point the finger now is very, very poor. OK, we've mentioned atrazine and diuron and also Benamil was um, found um, at a, a sugarcane runoff site, Empire Vale too. But how many of the 21 pesticides found have been registered for use with sugarcane? I haven't gone into that data um, closely, but certainly uh, diuron and atrazine and uh I haven't gone further than, than that. They were the two uh, ones that were highlighted at the at the top. Um, Metallochlor as well, I think that's used, that's the active ingredient in dual gold, and it's registered for use in uh, sugarcane and soybean uh, use, but I'm not sure of the others. Uh, I've been uh, 
trying to work out, you know, some of the reasons on why this may have happened. And bearing in mind, I only first found out about this at lunchtime uh, yesterday, so it's been a bit of a whirlwind ride. And what uh, is it that the cane industry does to prevent the runoff of chemicals into the waterways? Well, a lot of our practices have changed. We encourage uh, water transfer into our drains. We we uh, have vegetated sides on our drains. You know, the use of lamandra uh, vegetation along the edges for silt traps. We have uh, mown uh, headlands and mown trackways rather than just um, bare gravel or bare dirt. So we use them as silt traps. And, and again, we're using these chemicals as they're designed by accredited operators under the, the correct conditions with winds and uh, humidity, all that sort of stuff. And that that's proven up by the 2021 uh results where there was no sites that were out of out of bounds or, or, or over the limits if you like there were traces there but you're talking about in the millionths of a gram per liter of water it is so so tiny almost undetectable and way under the allowable limits that's Ross Farlow. He's the chairman of New South Wales Cane Growers Association. He was speaking there with Kim Honan about those findings released by the, by Southern Cross University on Tuesday. You can go back and listen to uh, Tuesday's episode of The Country Hour if you missed that conversation or at any time on the ABC Listen app as well. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Some great texts coming in. Thank you. We'll get to those in a moment. Keep sending your thoughts through, though, on 0467 982684. We're heading to the state's north now, where three weeks after fire ants were detected at South Mwilambar, another nest has been confirmed near the New South Wales-Queensland border. The fire ant nest has been found in the Currumbin Valley, so that is on the Queensland side of the border, but it is very close. It's also outside Queensland's current biosecurity zones. Now, on the New South Wales side of that incursion, Jan Fletcher runs cattle at Pigabeen in the Tweed Valley. She told our reporter Kim Honan she was hopeful red fire ants wouldn't come to her doorstep, but she has accepted it was just a matter of time. It's actually very scary. I've been hoping against hope that it wouldn't happen, but um, with the recent, recently we've had prevailing winds, predominantly from the north. It's to be expected, unfortunately. And how concerned are you about it? Well, very concerned because um, the Queen is reported to be able to fly for about five kilometres. Um, they seem to be making a natural progression south. We heard about the Talabudra and now they're at Crumbin. And where next, aren't we? I think it's a, a really serious biosecurity threat there. They're nasty little beasties. Um, There's concern for everybody. Our family works this place. We've got children and grandchildren working it with us. The wildlife, if you read the details, the wildlife can be impacted on it and and the environmental impact, it's a a huge worry, yes. And so you are easily within five kilometres of where that nest has been found? (laughs) Definitely. We can't hide from that one, I don't think. Have you been checking your property for fire ants at all? How accessible is your property to check? Well, wherever we go, and we've been spraying for giant palmetto grass and all sorts of things, wherever we go, we're looking to see what the ant nets look like. And um, you do check naturally now that we're aware of them. But the western end of our farm, which is directly very close to, to that discovery, the eastern end of the Firthen Range, it's covered in, it's very steep, it's covered in forest, but we're told that they're um, 
not supposed, it's, it's very steep of covered in forest, as I said, but they're not supposed to like that as a preferred habitat, but they like sunny areas. And we've put the fire trails in, we've done our tracks, and um, those provide sunny areas, so it looks like we're going to have to be a lot more vigilant. That's Jen Fletcher, a beef cattle producer from the Tweed Valley. Speaking to Kim Honan there, it is 21 past 12 on the Country Hour and the New South Wales Department of Planning, Industry and Environment has recommended that the Hills of Gold wind farm development near Nundal go ahead. In its referral, the department said it considers the project of public interest and says the site is suitable for a wind farm and would have positive flow-on effects for the community. But the department has recommended a number of turbines be reduced from 64 down to 47, and that, of course, would reduce the project capacity by around 420 megawatts. Lee Newbury is Angie's General Manager of Delivery and Engineering, the company behind the project. He told Christy Reading the company is very excited. It's great news for the project and, and great news for New South Wales and um, and being able to get another project through the, um, the Department of Planning and the, and the planning process um, over the last couple of years. So, yeah, we're very, very excited and, and very thankful of all the hard work that, uh, that's been done with the Department of Planning and the, um, the extensive local community. The next steps for the project is, yeah, the Independent Planning Commission. Um, so hopefully that will be referred in the very near future now that it's, the project's been published and... Um, and yeah, normally it's about a 12-week process, so uh, yeah, we're hoping to get a, a full determination by the end of March of next year or, or thereabouts. Okay, so it'll be yeah three months or so, and then will you be able to, to get moving if the IPC gives the approval? Yeah, absolutely we are. Um, so we've been committed to the project for the last three years since, um, since we acquired it, and um, yeah, have definitely got the intention and and, and the will and, and the people at the moment to, to move this on as quickly as we possibly can. So once the, uh, the planning determination is complete, it will move very quickly into uh, the detailed design phase and, um, and furthering the grid connection works as well. There has been some adjustments, though, to this project, which I would suggest shows that perhaps the initial plans weren't really in line with, with what is needed in that area. We've got a reduction in wind turbine numbers from 64 to 47, and the capacity is reduced from 420 to around 282 megawatts. What impact does this have? We, uh, a couple of impacts in, in reality is obviously it's a smaller farm, um, which is somewhat disappointing, but I think to your point earlier is, is that it's a better farm as a consequence of removing some of these turbines. We've also seen just the, the industry mature, I think, for, for the good of the, mature, for the industry in the longer term. So we've moved turbines because uh, you know, we've done a lot more studies on, on biodiversity, such as bats and owls and other things that you know, previously weren't required. And, and, um, and I think we've um, got a better biodiversity outcome for you know, the larger community as a consequence of that. We've moved and removed turbines um, to allow for aerial firefighting that wasn't a consideration many years ago. So I think there's a lot of things there that just the maturity of the industry and I, and I think a lot of those secondary consents and stakeholder groups are a lot more engaged now, a lot more aware of where the industry is going. And, and they've also got the people uh, that, that enable this to be, I think, more properly considered. Um, so I think we've got a good balanced outcome here and, um, and we're very excited. 47 turbines is still a fantastic outcome in our mind and, um, and looking forward to, to sort of progressing it through the next phase. With the scaling down of the project, though, will that impact uh, employment opportunities and, and timeline for construction? 
not dramatically, no. Um, so the timeline for construction probably would remove it, would reduce by a couple of months, but not substantially. It's still roughly a, a 24 to 30 month construction time frame for the project. Um, and as far as local jobs go, not really in the bigger scheme of things. It's probably a couple of jobs during construction would, would be changed, um, but it's more the duration. And then during the operation and maintenance phase, um, yeah, it's probably in the order of three or four jobs. Um, so that, that's still significant for a small community. Um, but at, at the end of the day, we've, we've still got, say, better than a dozen jobs that are created for the longer term. So that's still a very positive outcome. Less turbines. Will that mean less uh, money being put into the community? It does because it's based on a, on a per megawatt um, outcome and um, the work we've done with the Upper Hunter Council and the Tamworth Regional Council through the Voluntary Contribution Scheme, we've still got um, more than $11 million we've um, committed to at the moment as far as um, those regional benefit schemes. So that's balanced between the immediate community at Nundle and, and the larger regions in the Upper Hunter and, and that Tamworth Regional area. Um, and that doesn't include the amount of money that we, um, we're working with the Gomorrah people um, in regards to First Nations works on the project site and its uh, local proximity. Um, and we also have other opportunities and offerings that we'll, we'll bring to the market in addition to that as the project matures. Lee Newbury from Onji there, but the company behind the Hills of Gold Wind Farm project, and that will now go to the Independent Planning Commission for a final determination, whereas we know residents are also expected to have their say there, and the community does remain divided on that proposal. Hills of Gold Preservation Inc. member Megan Truesdale shared her thoughts with James Paris. It's been a long time coming, James. Um, you know, in February it'll be six years that we've been living with this over our heads and going through a very gruelling process of uh, assessing this proposal for the community uh, and interpreting it for community members. It's a relief to actually have the Department of Planning and Environment's referral to look at I actually haven't had a chance to read anything because we've literally just got the email through from the department. But um, the fact that the department is recommending removal of 17 turbines, um, it just indicates how problematic this proposal is. This project has incredible difficulty because of the terrain. You know, you're looking at a difference of 600 metres elevation at least, you know, from the, the valley to the top of the range. Even in just the few moments that I've been here, um, you know, people are walking past on the street that you may know and you're quickly talking about the information. How do you think the reaction will be? Uh, it will be a shock. It's, it's devastating for the local majority of the community who've been opposing this project for six years uh, because... Uh, you know, you've you've got to think of the residents who are located closest to the proposal, the greatest impacted, but also the wider the wider community, uh, because you've got to imagine the impact of a transport route that would require the, you know, the creation of a, a private road, you know, just behind us here at the entrance to our tourism town. It's it's the start of a new process. We need to go through these documents with a fine-tooth comb, as we have with every other document that has come before us, and pick up what we need to tell the Independent Planning Commission uh, and preparing for a battle. Megan Truesdale there. She's from the Hills of Gold Preservation, Inc., and she was speaking to reporter James Paris. You're tuned to the Country Hour, 28 minutes past 12. And a few texts coming in. Lynette says, uh, 
What are we now, a third world country tortured with pathetic weather-dependent power? A few people questioning what use uh, starting up Red Bank would be on a biomass uh, project there in the Hunter. And uh, David Weewar says, let the market decide, says Joel Fitzgibbon. Good idea. Dave, I think a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. We'll get to more of your text soon. Great to hear from you, Dave, in Trundle. Um, a bit of thunderstorm activity there gave them 29 mils of rain. It is certainly good to hear. You tuned to the Country Hour. Amelia Bernasconi filling in today. And between now and one, there is still plenty coming up. Lots of reminiscing, actually, to be had. You'll hear from an upper hunter wool classer who's notched up more than 70 years in the gig. Meanwhile, a southeast livestock agent calls his time on half a century in the industry. The technical side of things has been the biggest change. Back them days, I mean, cattle just had tail tags and... I don't think there was an NVD back them days. And I hope you can stay with us for those stories between now and one. But the ABC's cricket coverage is just about to begin. You can stay with us on the ABC Listen app, but on your normal radios, you will be going to the cricket in about 20 seconds time. I hope you can stay with us, though, for that and more. Here on the Country Hour between now and one, just jump on the good old ABC Listen app and we'll keep sharing those stories, the weather and the market information with you as well. If not, have a good time and enjoy the cricket. At bang on half past 12, let's get the news headlines with Bindi Bryce. Good afternoon. Hey, Amelia. More than two decades after she was convicted, Kathleen Folbig has been acquitted of killing her four young children. Ms Folbig was once known as the nation's worst female serial killer, but had always maintained her innocence. She served 20 years in prison after being convicted of three counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. She was pardoned and released from prison in June this year after a landmark special commission of inquiry found reasonable doubt over her guilt due to new medical evidence. Outside court, Ms Folbig has thanked her supporters and advances in science for her acquittal. Tributes are flowing for a Gold Coast pilot and his son who were killed in a light plane crash in northern New South Wales earlier this week. Lane Coxshawn and his son died after their light plane crashed into power lines in Lilydale near Grafton on Tuesday morning. Southport Flying Club manager Steve Rance says Mr Coxshawn has been a member of the club for more than a decade. He says he was a family mem- family man and a keen aviator. And the wait is over for thousands of New South Wales Year 12 students with the release of their ATAR scores this morning. More than 67,000 young people across the state woke up to their subject results, closing out the final chapter in 13 years of schooling. Education Minister Prukar has congratulated all of the students for getting over the finish line. Oh, I don't miss those days, the pressure that comes with all of that, Bindi. Yeah, the stress and the uh, oh, late nights. Yeah. Um, all-nighters I pulled. So, yeah, well done to all the Year 12 students. Absolutely. It's a huge achievement and hopefully they're all happy with those scores today. Bindi Bryce, thank you very much. No worries, Millie. Bindi Bryce from your ABC Upper Hunter Newsroom on the Country Hour, where it is 28 minutes to one. Let's head over to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Jordan Attar is there. G'day, Jordan. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, what are we looking at today? More heat. <laughs> yes, unfortunately so for many areas of the inland, still continuing to see that signature of warm temperatures as we go into the coming week. We're going to continue to watch for severe storms, as obviously we did see quite a few yesterday evening around parts of the Blue Mountains. We'll be see to 9am upwards of 50 millimetres at Oberon being the highest we saw to 9am this morning. So the continuation of that um, attachment of moisture that to that system that's pushing into the northeast for the the next few days is going to be seeing the potential for more severe storms. Today it's going to be areas around the New England northwest, parts of the metropolitan Sydney area, into parts of the mid-north coast and northern rivers. 
So by Friday into the weekend, we're going to see that shift into the far northeastern parts of the state where we are going to see again that afternoon activity with that potential risk of severe storms. Um, as we go into this next week as well, as much as obviously we're starting to see that relief of heat from many parts of the state, we are going to be looking again at a resurgence of warm temperatures as we head into the new week, in a particular focus as we go towards Tuesday, Wednesday next week, where we are starting to model some quite warm temperatures pushing across the state, upwards of up to 14 degrees above the December average for this um, system that we're looking through coming through Tuesday and Wednesday. And the potential we could see a quite a widespread severe thunderstorm um, risk as well as we get through that period with moisture coming in from the tropical north and some again moisture coming in from easterly winds starting to aid the potential we could see some more widespread storms into the um, into the mid part of the week. Mm, we've just had a text come in actually Jordan from David north of Golgong who said they had a dry storm there that sparked a bushfire this morning so we know how risky it can be. We do have some uh, fire weather warnings in place too. That's absolutely right. So conditions at the moment we are still seeing for today, so that Greater Sydney, Greater Hunt area and into parts of the New England area as well. Uh, we are obviously seeing by Friday still those warm temperatures about, but by Saturday we're starting to see those winds still pushing in again and we're going to see a potential again for seeing some fire weather warnings into the northern parts and potentially into the Greater Hunter areas as well. And that really is going to be a continuation as we head through into the week with those warm temperatures still about. All that really is required is some, for some winds to be attached to these systems to see those fire dangers increase and the warnings to be issued by the Rural Fire Service. So one to keep an eye out for as we go through the next seven days. Absolutely. Now, Jordan, you did mention the prospect of a little bit of rain in some parts, but um, can we just go back through that for those who I know are hanging on for, for follow-up rain, especially with all this heat has just taken so much moisture out of the ground. Um, what, what are we likely to see in terms of that... Um, albeit scattered over the next few days. Yeah, so the focus obviously for storms at the moment is going to be from really hit or miss storms um, with the risk of a sea for severe storms more focused towards the northeastern part of the state. So again, around parts of the northern ranges and generally eastern slopes, we could see high totals with those severe storm risk in there. So we could see short, sharp bursts of rainfall and some very isolated areas, which again could see one person see a lot and one person see nothing next door. So it really is going to be dependent on where those storms form. You could see again a return of potentially 50 mils in very short periods of time but again it could see very much nothing in uh, very short distances away as we get to that system more next week so when that tuesday wednesday period it is going to be down to again how that system progresses within our models and there is still a level of uncertainty still at this stage noting we're obviously five six days away but there is a potential again with more widespread potential for storms that we could see some scattered rainfall that could be more broad in nature and it is going to be more again dependent on how that system develops and the potential moisture attached to the system that could again be also influenced by the potential tropical cyclone progression in the north of the nation as well. Yeah, goodness me, there is a lot to unpack. Always appreciate you and the team there, Jordan, to do that for us here. Thanks for your time today. Catch you later. Thank you. Jordan Atara from the Bureau of Meteorology with us here on the Country Hour where it is 26 minutes to one. Thanks to those who are still with us on the old-fashioned radio. You're there listening to the cricket. But if you're with us on the app, it's great to have you here. You can actually text us straight from the app if you like. It'll, there'll be a little button saying contact the program or if you want to do it old school, that is fine. The number is 0467 Hi, I'm Renee Crosh from Evenings. If you've downloaded the ABC Listen app, but now it sits lonely and unloved on your phone, well, summer is the perfect time to reacquaint yourself with a world of great ABC content. Take the cricket with you wherever you go. I'll be settling in with podcasts like Conversations and Unravel. Be great to visit music playlists like Zanro's Take 5 and Robbie Buck's Songs and Stories. So bring on summer listening and listen big with the ABC Listen app.
at 23 minutes away from one. Amelia Bernasconi with you, filling in for Michael Condon just today and tomorrow. And Condon will be back from his little holiday on Monday. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, a major coal mine near Mudgee is proposing to increase its temporary accommodation facilities. Wilpenjong Coal near Willar is seeking approval from the state's planning department to build 25 single-storey demountable buildings. It would have the capacity to house about 100 workers, which accounts for 16% of the site's workforce. The owners of the mine, Peabody Energy, say the development is necessary due to a shortage of housing in Golgong and Mudgee. However, the president of Willar Progress Association, Bev Smiles, has raised some concerns over what it means for the local community. She told Hamish Cole the mine needs to be investing in permanent housing. Peabody Energy is the largest property and house owner in the Willar district, and that's because of uh, the number of people that have been severely impacted and have sold out over a period of time since um, 2006. But the company has not maintained a lot of their properties to rental standard and are now proceeding to demolish houses in the Willar village in particular at a time when there's a housing crisis across the state but in the Mudgee region. And Willar is also the centre of uh, new work for the Central West Renewable Energy Zone and there are people begging for rental housing in Wallar Village and being denied access uh, to the housing because Peabody has not invested in the maintenance of these buildings. And, and on that, that's part of the reason that with that housing shortage is part of the reason why the mine says that this temporary accommodation is needed. Do you think that the temporary accommodation is is a suitable planning process to be going through and how does it feel that they, they are going ahead with these, these demolitions? Well, the Willar community wants permanent, well-maintained housing in the village and we would prefer that the T- Department of Planning require the company to construct permanent houses to house their workers while that accommodation is needed, but to then leave a permanent legacy in the village for the future. So this mine has really disrupted and virtually destroyed the Willar community. We want to have a future after the mine, and we think a requirement to build new houses in the village would be a much better outcome for the Mudgee region uh, than a temporary workers' camp on the mine site. And you mentioned that you think the mine has left these intentionally left these houses to to go by the wayside. Why do you think that's been the case that they haven't been maintained? Well, they probably because unfortunately the Department of Planning signed off on a social impact management plan that didn't actually deal with the social impacts on the Willar community and gave this company permission to demolish a minimum of five houses a year in the Willar area, which is totally against the New South Wales government housing policy for regional areas 
and it's really not leaving us with a with a legacy for the future. And uh, I think it's just a cost-saving process, which is not showing any corporate responsibility for the future of the Willar community. That's Bev Smiles. She's the president of the, of the Willar Progress Association, speaking there with Hamish Cole. Now, a Peabody spokesperson say they strenuously reject claims that they are affecting housing availability in the local community. They say houses are unsafe. those houses are unsafe for people to live in, not suitable for either refurbishment or reuse, and many of them contain damaged asbestos. The Pe- Peabody spokesperson went on to say that their application to build an accommodation facility on their mining lease for their own employees is to ensure they take pressure off the local housing market, provide quality accommodation for their people, and it is supported by the Midwestern Regional Council. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. And in a bid to create a research centre to help farmers reduce greenhouse gas emissions, it's all been backed by the Australian government now. This is the Net Zero Emissions Agricultural Cooperative Research Centre. Bit of a mouthful. It involves 73 partners across agriculture, education, Indigenous organisations and government. But securing the federal funding was the final piece in the puzzle. Its interim chief executive, Matt Morell, says the program will be industry-led. This is not a case of a bunch of scientists sitting in a room thinking, gee whiz, this would be great to do. There's more industry has to say, yep, we see a real imperative to do this. How can we then co-design a program of research and training and innovation to address that target? So while we had some ideas, of course, about the research that needed to be done, The first step for us was really to go out and talk to industry and say, are you interested? And we were overwhelmed by the positive response. So who is involved with the CRC? The CRC uh, brings together a really extraordinary set of partners. So we have all six state governments in the Northern Territory. We have 10 of our leading universities. We have 16 major uh, industry players across Australia and then we have another coalition of uh, 43, I think it is, small to medium-sized enterprises, grower groups, Indigenous enterprises uh, who have all signed up to this CRC bid. The CRC has received federal government funding. What does that signify for the work you're trying to do? The federal government and through um, the Department of Industry, Minister Husick has committed $87 million over 10 years to this bid. The requirement of the federal government is that that sum be matched by the partner fund. So there's about $175 million of of cash co-investment in this initiative What that allows us to do is to have a critical mass to be able to bring major players together in Australia to do research that's both going to hit the ground running and also more ambitious research that solves some of the more intractable problems in this area. It will also act uh, as a coordinator and a convener of research and industry engagement in this space across Australia. So it's a big problem, obviously. This is one of the the greatest problems of our time is to address the climate change. 
That's Interim Chief Executive of the Zero Net Emissions Agricultural CRC, Professor Matthew Morell, speaking there with Callie Buchanan. On the Country Hour, where it is quarter to one. And when you go to work, do you think about working that job for a couple of years, maybe 20, maybe 30? You might have reached those milestones. How does 70 years in an industry sound? For Brian Hunt from the Upper Hunter, he has just been honoured by the Australian Wool Exchange for 60 years of wool classing. But really, he's been doing it for 71, even predating when AWEX was formed. After finishing school, he started as a shed hand at 16 in the early 1950s and soon found himself graduating from the East Sydney Technical College, where so many wool classes turned out at that time. When you passed what you had to do in the in the final exam down there, you never got handed the certificate until you classed three clips. Uh, they could be two merino and a crossbred, or two crossbreds and a merino, but couldn't not all couldn't be all the same. So uh, I got the opportunity to class three clips, and uh, one was um, they're all local here. One was at Springvale at Wingen, one was at Wizenset at Timor, and one was at Bobadil at Willatree. Bobadil at Willatree was a crossbred. The other two are merinos, and then I had to you had to notify the inspectors that were tied up at the technical college that uh, you had done these clips and they're going to be sold. What the broker was they were with, and they went in and inspected them and either passed them or didn't. Anyway, I was a bit lucky. They passed them, and I got my certificate within just a couple of weeks of that happening. Gosh. And so what kept you going for all these decades? Um, were you shearing and classing and doing all of that sort of uh, stuff in oh, the shed? I, I, my father had still had a shearing contracting business. Although he, when I learned, did learn it, he had a class that had been with him since he started. He started in 1948 mm. contracting and he had this had a local class of here, uh, Sid Moore actually. And uh, I couldn't sort of hop into the job, but then I eventually did hop into the job, but I had a couple of stints away. I'd won two or two season stints at Inverell with a contractor up there and uh, a few other sort of individual sheds uh, around the northwest and uh, uh, on the Queensland border. And uh, the main class of a dad then, up until 1959, when I done my own shed contract first as a contractor. And then uh, we we were sort of worked out. Then we had he had a run and I had a run, and that's the way it went on. And then uh, I took the lot over in 1970 and uh, carried on from there. I was, and then of course uh, my son came along and he learned wool classing in Tamworth, and uh, that's Tim, and uh, he became our wool classer. Up until uh, well, I actually sold the business in 2017. Yeah, Brian, what did you notice the big changes were in the wool production scene from when you took it over from your father versus when you passed it on to Tim? Well, one of the big things, uh, I was great mates with uh, Javits Carr and Reggie Foreman, and Reggie and I had to update our classing with a three-week stint at the Tanner Technical College, and that was the big change from spinning qualities, you know, from the old spinning counts to the microns the way it is today. And uh, that was a big change on that side of it. But one of the biggest changes, i just trying to think what year it might have started, was the um, introduction of the power wool presses. And the power wool presses, like the old wool presses were all manual, had a big long handle on the side of it, and you had a wool press going up and down, you know, with his arms. When the power presses came, they were either were electric or had a, a motor. A lot of them in the early days had a motor. 
a petrol motor attached to them. You kick the motor up and, and all that sort of... But with that, the weight of the bales went up. And uh, I can think I was only asked the other few weeks ago about the biggest clip I ever, we ever done. And and uh, back when I started, the, that clip was um, it comprised two sheds that the people owned. It was a 1,000 bales. And that brought that sound like the life of a thousand bales back to, um, you know, well, it just depends on really how, you know, every how interested they really, really were, but it could have brought it back to 700, 800 bales. That's, that was one of the biggest changes like that. Wow. What's the sort of camaraderie like in that space, Brian, as well? You know, you as you were learning the trade, you've obviously got a lot of family ties, but what sort of tips did you pick up? Because I imagine there's a lot of pressure on the classer to be quick but obviously efficient and not miss anything so what networks did you run in there to really hone in that skill well i i might have been pretty lucky i suppose i had some some good uh, teachers and uh when i was learning nothing was sort of oh it's right mate <laughs> let it go you know nothing like that it was all no it's got to be spot on and mm-hmm. and it was spot on and i think i know there were classes that uh, might have sent a clip away that wasn't satisfactory and they got Called over the coals by the wool brokers or the wool the wool brokers only. But otherwise, the feeling in the ship from when I first started, I reckon it's a great atmosphere. With you might get one or two employees that uh, were a bit different, but uh, the bulk of them were a lot of hard cases. There's no question about it, and uh, it was great. And how do you think our region, you know, the Upper Hunter, the broader I guess state and country, has changed as far as our wool production, Brian, in recent decades? Are we getting decent returns at the moment, or what do you think of the current um, state of play and returns there? You could go back 12 months ago and things were a lot better now at the present time. Mm. I just think that it's not near as good as it was. And that period of time we've just been talking about, there's probably three or four periods. It's been renowned, though, for going up and having a, you know, a good, sweet run, and then the bottom fall out of it for various reasons. Mm. But the wool production in the upper hunter, it's dropped dramatically, there's no question about it. And uh, my father had three sheds, and I might get a phone call or two about this, but I'll stick to what I'm going to say. <laughs> three sheds within eight eight mile of the town. One right on the northern end of the township, one down south of Blanford, and another one just a bit east of Blanford. And those three sheds usually show somewhere about 30,000 or better. Wow. So that's the combination of the three of them added together, I mean. That has definitely changed, no question about the production of the wool out of the, the upper hunters. You know, nothing like it was, nothing at all like it was. That's Marando's Brian Hunt. He's been wool classing for 71 years and plenty more years ahead of him. That's a bit of a flavour of the program this afternoon. These days it's estimated current school graduates who've just got their ATARs this morning, they could have 17 jobs across five to seven careers. That's a lot of change, which makes our next story even more remarkable. Graham Chippy Bowler has been a Cooma livestock agent for 50 years, a career that spanned droughts, commodity downturns, through it all, those record prices and buoyant markets as well. But now he's decided this week will be his last as an agent selling sheep at Cooma Sale Yards and he caught up with our reporter, Josh Becker. Yes, Josh, after um, 50 years in the industry, um, decided to call, uh, call a halt to this livestock part of our business. Uh, we'll continue to do a bit of real estate, but come the uh, end of this week before Christmas, we'll, um, we'll see Spotter and Company's sort of livestock side. Congratulations, 50 years in any industry and then you know, in the livestock game, that's, that's a remarkable achievement. Yeah, like it just seems to have gone in a bit of a blur, but um, I remember starting up at the top yards up here when I was only 18. 
with uh, Pitson and Montague. Frank Montague was a great boss, and um, later on in years, uh, John uh, John Mooney was an excellent boss to me, and uh, then then went out by ourselves. But yeah, it's been um, been a, a long, uh, dry road in parts, but there's been a number of good years, but uh, a lot of real tough years, like going back. Remember the years when I started off, and they were actually shooting sheep back in 89, 90, which was a terrible sort of event. But, um, but you know, the, 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 not, not a lot of highs in the industry, probably more lows for the producers, but the last two or three years have been a pretty good result for them. Yeah. yeah. So 1973, what were things like then compared to what things are like now as a livestock agent? Now that, how have you seen things change? Oh, look, the technical side of things has been the biggest change, Josh. You know, back... Back them days, I mean, cattle just had tail tags and I don't think there was an NVD back them days. <laughs> um, but, yeah, over the years, just the technology's uh, certainly been the biggest change, I think. But um, I wouldn't be looking forward to the electronic tags on sheep. I think that's going to be a hard hard one to, for the industry. But um, but generally, you know, the stock have all improved over the years with breeding, but... Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it is a good breeding area and people get a good result they've got the right product. Yeah. What's the thing you most enjoy about uh, being a livestock agent? Oh, I think getting a good result for your vendor, even in tough markets, you know. But uh, I think, yeah, just to see the... Uh, be able to ring them and say you've got a good, a good price for your sheep or your cattle and, uh, and, and to work hard and draft them properly and sell them properly, yeah, that's been yeah, one of my uh, main things. What's the biggest challenge or the, the toughest part for you over the years? Oh, look, you know, certainly the droughts have been pretty tough years, but, um, you know, everybody's got to go through it, so you just got to knuckle down and you know, do your best. You've been a big advocate over the years for local selling centres, for the Cooma sale yards, and we've seen the trend uh, more and more sheep sold in, in Wagga and Yass uh, rather than here in Cooma. What do you think is the outlook f- for this selling centre now that I guess you're a big advocate and you're leaving the industry? Yeah, look, it is a concern. Yeah, like, um, as you did state, you know, a lot, a lot of stock do go out of the area. But, you know, of all the years I've been here, and an old agent said to me, well, he said, numbers bring buyers. So if you, you pen the stock, uh, buyers will come and, you know, come and attend and buy. So, yeah, there's going to be uh, probably a bit of indifference there with, with, num- with numbers of sales. But um, certainly up to the, uh, the three agents left to... To look after the yards because they're a big part of the community and the area. John Mooney got a little farm out on the Dangelong Road. And uh, former livestock agent? Yep, I was an agent uh, for over 50 years. I retired seven years ago. Today is the last sheep sale for Graham Chippy Boller at uh, the Cooma, fittingly at the Cooma Yards here. What do you make of 50, you know, reflect on his career, 50 years in the game? Well, I think Chippy's had a, a terrific career and he should be congratulated. He started in 1973. I was working with Frank Montague and he uh, at Pittsun and Montague, and um, he started there when he finished the the HSC. Chippy's a very good agent, a very good judge of livestock, very good at drafting. He'll get on the phone and do the homework, bring the buyers to Cooma. A great supporters of Cooma. He didn't like sending to Wagga and Auctions Plus. He'd prefer to sell them himself, and he's got a good following because of that. That's farmer John Mooney, a former agent, one of Chippy's bosses back in the day as well, ending that report from Josh Becker. And a big congratulations there to Graham Chippy Boller on a spectacular career. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Landmark decision. A New South Wales court quashes the conviction of Kathleen Folbig, who was jailed over the deaths of her four children. 
cleanup. Locals assess the damage and start clearing debris after tropical cyclone Jasper crossed the far north Queensland coast. And the UN Climate Change Conference reaches a deal, but will it be enough to make a difference? Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. You're still tuned to the Country Hour, though. Gav, the tractor driver, thank you for your message. I don't know why we don't have a dedicated channel for sport, but it is good to have you here with us on the, the app. Market time, though. Leanne Dax is at Wagga. Good afternoon. A remarkable turnout of 50,000 lambs and 26,800 sheep found a smaller group of buyers today. Notably, two major export companies refrained from purchasing heavy lambs, causing a drop in prices of $20 to $40. Prices fluctuated between $174 to $228, averaging $635 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Despite this, major domestic buyers stabilised the trade lamb prices, with most holding steady or slightly lower. Lambs weighing 22 to 24 kilo fetched from 148 to 171. Restockers were active in the market, particularly for well-bred lambs, which were sold within a range of 66 to 111. This morning witnessed a substantial volume of sheep transactions, resulting in a decline in prices by 10 to $30, with numerous processing plants on the verge of closure for the Christmas break. Heavy mutton was priced between $35 and 48, while trade and light sheep fetched 16 to 40. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Graeme Richard at Yass. Good afternoon. Numbers eased to 900. The quality of the yarding was very mixed as producers clean out before the end of the year. There was good numbers of yearlings. Younger weaners were limited. The export run was lighter overall and around 150 mostly heavy cows were penned. Not all the usual export buyers operated and there was less competition from feedlotters. The market sold to cheaper trends despite the drop in quality and condition. The better shaped feeder steers were back 30 cents, 210 to 298, plainer and lighter feeders, 160 to 180. Feeder heifers fell 35 cents, 208 to 228 on the medium weights and were 17 cents softer on the heavy weights, 205 to 233. Heavy trade steers were firm, 245 to 255. Grown steers and bullocks dropped 20 cents, 190 to 240. The better shaped grown heifers lost 25 to 30 cents, 165 to 218. Cows fell 45 cents with heavy D muscle, 168 to 192 and high yielding limo cows reached 200 cents. Hello with Angus Williams. Numbers fell by 2,200 for the last sale of the year through yarding of 4,150. It was a mixed quality yarding with young cattle making up the bulk of the numbers. Cows were well supplied with limited number of grown steers and heifers. Young cattle to the trade were firm with prime yearlings selling from 213 to 300. Feeder steers and heifers were 15 to 20 cheaper with feeder steers selling from 238 to 314 and heifers sold from 180 to 280. With hot dry weather continuing, young cattle to the restockers were considerably cheaper with the young steers selling from 334, while young restocker heifers sold to 296. The limited number of grain steers and heifers were 36 to 46 cheaper. Prime grain steers sold from 190 to 32, and prime grain heifers sold from 190 to 248. Cows were 20 to 35 cheaper, with two and three scores selling from 90 to 186, and prime heavyweight cows sold from 178 to 220 to average 90, 195 cents per kilo. This has been Angus Williams to MLA at Dubbo.